All right, so first topic I wanted to cover with you was uh, one of the surveys that came out during the week from Census, which is one of, uh, it's an Australian marketing consumer platform. So the survey found that uh, an estimated three and a half million Aussies have been paid JobKeeper through the coronavirus crisis. So that's about one in four workers. Um, the, the census chief said that the biggest impact of like JobKeeper being reduced or being taken away completely would be felt in Victoria and Queensland. Um, and almost a third of small businesses believe they'll be majorly impacted when the JobKeeper finishes at the end of March 2021. So I guess I just wanted to see what your thoughts were on that. Yeah, so it's quite interesting stats that um, 35% thinking the JobKeeper you know, is due to finish in March, but there's some suggestions that because the government has saved money on it, that it might be extended till September on, yeah. again, a lower amount. But the I suppose the interesting thing is um, around one in four workers who've been paid JobKeeper... Like, it's been a very successful program to keep businesses afloat and all that sort of thing. Um, but I suppose the impact on the property market is if homeowners are on JobKeeper um, and they've got a mortgage and they're on a, a deferral or paying interest only or on reduced payments, um, how that will impact them. And yeah. will that mean that people have to sell um, which you now will increase listings because right. the biggest issue we've got at the moment is lack of supply. Yeah. And the other issue, I suppose, is if people are on JobKeeper or JobSeeker and are currently not paying rent, how will that impact? So I'm not too sure why the biggest impact is going to be felt in Victoria and Queensland. I'm mm. not too sure. Maybe it's because there's lots of, um, especially in Queensland, lots of tourism. Yeah. Um, so once that, you know, now that the borders are, are open across the country, um, you know, that might reduce it, reduce it a little bit. Mm. Uh, with Victoria, it may be due to the fact that they've been, you know, just coming out of lockdown. But, yeah. Well, yeah. One thing that we've spoken about in the past, and it's been highlighted in some of the articles we'll collect over the week, is that a lot of companies and industries have only been making any money and making ends meet and paying their employers because of JobKeeper without it their industries would be suffering or failing at this point just because there's not a demand for it right now. So I guess that might be one of the, the reasons that a lot of companies, like some of the industries are gonna really suffer when yeah. JobKeeper gets taken away. Interestingly, some, some of the bigger companies around have um, still recorded record profits while they've got a lot of people on JobKeeper mm. and have been paying big dividends and um, big salaries yeah. to execs. So, whether that's within the spirit of it, not too sure. But yeah. I think the whole idea of JobKeeper was to keep, um, yeah, keep demand going, keep money in people's pockets. Mm. Uh, we're running up a huge deficit, but um, with money as cheap as it is, um, you know, if you're ever going to borrow money, you might as well borrow it when it's you know, under one percent for government. Yeah. Um, second thing I wanted to talk to you about. Uh, it became more relevant to me at least recently because of um, me trying to get one, but credit scores. So um, I, I applied to try and get my credit score and he's going for a jump. I applied for a credit score recently uh, just to see what my score would come up as and it wasn't exactly a good score um, and that's based off my age obviously and 
I've never applied for any credit. I've never had a loan. I've never had a, fault, a default on a repayment of any sort, but it still came up as having a fairly low credit score, like not something that's great. What I wanted to talk to you about is like what, uh, what affects your credit score and why mine wasn't that good even though I've got no history of bad credit. Does that make sense? Yeah. So the things that impact your credit score are the number of credit inquiries you make. So we often see clients who might be looking for a loan and they might apply online with a number of different lenders, just yeah. make inquiries. And if those lenders um, access your credit report or access your, uh, yeah, yeah, take a look at your credit report, well, that could adversely impact your credit score because... Um, if you inquire to a lot of places, um, yeah, the le- the lender you do end up going to may think that you inqu- you inquired and were not back. Um, obviously, late payments, regular late payments on credit cards, phone bills, electricity bills, gas bills, um, or home loans yeah. will impact your credit score. Uh, defaults impact it quite a lot. Um, but if you've got defaults, sometimes it's good to check whether the default was actually well one yours in the first place we've had clients who have had defaults put on their on their um on their credit report that didn't actually belong to them right um we've also had incidences where people have had credit cards or other um uh, credit applications made on their behalf by the people they know or people they don't know so those sorts of things but with yourself not having had any credit is not really an issue okay. um, because you know banks will just see that your credit report's probably about two pages long rather than ten yeah and it'll just have you know your last known addresses and a few other things and okay so um, the next topic I wanted to ask you about which was um, we talk we've talked a lot about the responsible lending and the changes um, that are made from that so the chief economist update from realestate.com.au was talking about the, the new changes scheduled to come through March 2021, I believe, um, speaking about uh, shifting responsibility from lender to the borrower. So the economist said for banks, it means they'll no longer meticulously have to investigate people's expenses and make value judgments. Um, for borrowers, it means you need to be fully aware of what you're getting into before you take on large amounts of debt. So. Um, just from like my personal opinion or my 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 perspective of it, I always sort of assume that this means there'll be little to no um, investigation from a bank to make sure that you're a responsible person to, to lend money to. But it's sounding like it's not that laissez-faire, like it's going to be somewhere in the middle. I just wanted to know what, if you can sort of describe to me what it used to be like over the yeah. last couple of years yeah. compared to what they want it to be? So probably five or six years ago, credit was pretty easy to get. Banks would lend money. Banks would lend money interest only to even people who lived in a house, which is not necessarily the done thing. Then the regulators and the government got a bit concerned about the number of investor loans, the number of interest only loans, and put some artificial caps on those to try and sort of slow investor lending down. Then we had the Banking Royal Commission where they, one of the one of the recommendations was that, um, or one of the outcomes was that 
um, they thought that banks were not looking at clients' um, situation well enough and just mm. taking information as it was presented and not looking at it. Uh, then we had the Wagyu and Shiraz case where Westpac and um, As where ASIC took um, action against ASIC took action against Westpac, and that went to the federal court. And the federal court basically said that uh, Westpac could use um, benchmarks to assess people because their behaviour after they had a loan was always a bit different to before mm. they had a loan. Because you know when you're renting. Yeah, usually your rent was was uh, lower than a mortgage, and um, you know when you took on a mortgage commitment, you had less disposable income, and you wanted to spend more money on the house and that sort of thing. Okay. Um, so what they're talking about, and it's a proposal at the moment, um, still being, I think it's going to a Senate committee, is um, that the responsibility will rest on the borrower to ascertain their ability to repay a loan. Um, whereas at the moment, the general feeling is that all the responsibility is on the lender. Mm. The interesting thing I find about this is that it's being pushed by the bigger banks who have very slow turnaround times. But in the same environment, the smaller bank, so the bigger banks' turnaround times might be three to four weeks, but in the same environment using the same parameters, smaller lenders can turn a loan around in one to two days. Mm. So I think this has got more to do with um, poor logistics practices by the big four banks and their processes and their checks and balances and the level of um, stupidity that right. they go to when assessing loans um, is basically their own fault. That's right. just my personal opinion. Right. Um, I've written to a couple of my bank colleagues to suggest to them that when these changes come in, if they don't change the way they assess loans, who are they going to blame then? Yeah, okay. Because the issue is their practice. Right. Um, we get some some lenders will give us a conditional approval when ninety five percent of the information is there and it's a good deal, whereas other lenders will just ask time and time again just meaningless questions that okay. add no value to the client. Right. Or or to them, and I can't even, I don't even understand why they do it half the time. Okay. So I think, I think it's a good thing. Um, borrowers need, it's just like when you go buy a car, um, you buy a house, um, there's a Latin saying, I think it's caveat emptor, which means buy, let buyer beware, mm. which means a buyer has to make their own inquiries before they purchase something. No different to if you're purchasing a phone plan, credit card, home loan. Yeah. Um, and you know, I'd again plug that more than six, around 60% of all loans come through brokers now because a broker can, without wanting to sound condescending, can dumb it down for people because there's a lot of paperwork and it's there's a lot of different terms and that sort of stuff and we can make it simple for people. Okay. The fourth thing we're going to cover, um, I just wanted to get your uh, ideas on it and... Uh, it's the extension of the home builder scheme. So they've announced, the government's announced that um, the home builder scheme will continue until the end of March uh, in, a, in a bid to prevent a major decline in construction activity. Um, the, the main thing I wanted to ask you about was the changes they'd announced were that starting in January, uh, the, the grant program will be tapered down to 15 grand rather than 30 mm -hmm. as the scheme incentive. And then 
the price cap will increase to 950000 in New South Wales and 850000 in Victoria. Why do you think that they've lowered the stimulus but raised the amount of the property that it can be? Do you know what I mean? Why yeah. do you think that is? Yeah, I'm not, exa- I'm not exactly sure. It doesn't really make a lot of sense. Mm. I can see why they've extended it um, because it has been popular and it's sort of shoring up a pipeline of work. Um, a bit like JobKeeper and JobSeeker, when they extended it, they reduced the amount, so I can see why they've done that. Um, increasing the price caps, yeah, I'm not, I'm not exactly sure why, why that was done, because I think the price caps were pretty good anyway. Mm. Um, but yeah, it has, has been very popular. Um, one of the issues that people need to remember about Home Builder is in a lot of states, it's not paid until the until you start a building. So when you're applying for a loan, you can't really take it into account as part of the funds to a loan. Right. Because at the time of assessing the loan and approving the loan, the bank can't, well, there's no guarantee to the bank that you're actually going to get it. Because if, just say, you're on the $15,000 scheme after 1 January, if for some reason um, your builder goes bankrupt or yeah. it's delayed and you don't start or finish within the time frame, you then don't get that money. Yeah. Come, to, come to your final payment, you might be 15 grand short. Mm. So you've just got to be, just be careful with that one. Um, construction loans are quite messy. Because you know, when you go buy a house for five hundred grand, um, you put in your money, the bank lends the rest, and the loan settles, and you move in, and everything's hunky dory. Yeah. But when you buy um, house and land, or land and then build, you've got five or six different payment points because you buy the land, and then. You pay a deposit, and then there's a payment when the slabs put in, yeah, and then when each the frame, stage of the construction yeah, process, progress, progress payments. So it's just quite um, there's there's just a lot more involved in it. So. Okay. Um, another thing I wanted to talk to you about was from CanStar. So um, CanStar produced a survey speaking to uh, more than two thousand Australian adults to to sort of break down the top three savings goals. Uh, 79% of Australians who answered the survey, uh, they wanted to put, uh, sorry, how do I rephrase this? Sorry. So, um, 10% of the, the adults that were surveyed put buying a house as their, one of their highest goals. Retirement was the highest, um, priority for putting money away and money, money and living costs as well. Um, the article I read that was speaking on this survey spoke about a term that I hadn't heard in a while, which was uh, the bank of mum and dad. And it was commenting on a lot of these people might be looking down the road as using the bank of mum and dad for getting their first home. Can you sort of explain what the bank of mum and dad is and how that would work in a home loan sense? Yeah, so just just with those things about the savings goals, um, yeah, one of the things that's missing um, is travel. Mm. And yeah, a year or two ago, one of the top three savings goals on I think would have been travel, because yeah. a lot of people were you know, travelling overseas and, and that sort of stuff. So that's that's really interesting. 
Um, the banker mum and dad is its concept's been around for a, a while. Is where you either use security in your parents' house yeah. to help secure the loan on the property you're buying um, to um, avoid mortgage insurance, or where mum and dad give you cash yeah. to help to help with that. So that's that's how that sort of come about. You know, if you're looking at buying a um, place in Sydney for a million dollars um, you know, you're going to have it's going to be over a stamp duty threshold if you're a first home buyer so it might be a million and fifty or a million and seventy you know do you have 270 grand in the bank to put towards the to put towards the purchase yeah that you've saved while you've been renting usually not yeah. um, but your parents they might live somewhere um, basically anywhere in Sydney and they would have 270 grand's worth of equity yeah, to cover okay. your 20% plus cost. So uh, that's the thing. Um, yeah, as I said before, like before the pandemic, these numbers probably would have been quite a bit different. Yeah. And one of the ones about, um, um, you know, a lot of adult children are still living at home at age 33 is, is quite interesting. Yeah. So I think we I've sort of thought for a while... Um, that Australia might become a bit more European. Hmm. Um, we're sort of catching up to over there where, well, house prices and that sort of thing as a percentage of income. And in overseas countries, there's lots more blended families. You might yeah. have three generations in the same house. Whereas over here, it's normally been mum and dad live separate and the kids live separate. So, yeah, we're seeing things like granny flats, um, either for kids to live in or parents to live in. Yeah. Uh, those sorts of things but just a, another thing about the banker mum and dad if you're a rent vester and you don't own a current property you can use the banker mum and dad to buy an investment property um, it's just not for buying a place to move into yeah so. okay and and sort of the way I've had you explain it to me with the banker mum and dad so just hypothetically your parents own a house and they've They've paid out the loan and it's worth 600 grand, the value of the property. They could use 60 grand of that property as equity and that's the deposit for your kid's home loan. Yep. Does that make sense? So yep. that might be 10% yep. if you were looking for 600 as well. Yeah, so banks, banks will normally allow up to 80% of the parent's property. So if, you've, if your parent's property is worth a million dollars, um, there's effectively 800 grand worth of equity available. Um, we've had clients where we've had two or three kids' properties against the parents' property. Mm. So as long as there's equity, um, yeah, gener generally most lenders don't really look too hard at the parents' ability to service anything. It's more around having the equity we like to make sure that the parents could service it in case they got into difficulty. And because, um, you know, if the kid's house has to be sold for any reason, uh, the parents are on the hook for the amount of the guarantee. So so you'll, you'll try and plan ahead uh, just in case, like what, what plan B is and plan C's are yep. in, in effect if the, the loan applicant can't service it. Yeah, so, so you might have a thing around, you know, how much super do the parents have? Are they still working? Yeah. Can you insure the loan 
um, with the kids have got? Do the kids have adequate income protection, life insurance, all that sort okay. of thing? Um, one of the other ones that came through during the week, which was from Property Observer, one of the websites we'll get content from is uh, talking about the housing approvals. We're at the highest level since February 2000. So building approvals for private sector housing um, has risen to the highest recorded level since the 2000s, which is pretty incredible. Uh, that's from the, AE, the Australian Bureau of Statistics. So um, a lot of that was coming from, as, as much as the, the Director of Construction Stats from the ABS said that the continued strong demand for detached housing follows the relaxation of COVID-19 restrictions in most states and territories. Um, when they say building approvals for private sector, what I wanted to ask was what private sector housing actually is. Is that just a private property like, like you or me wanting to build on yeah, a property? Norm normally it relates to um, like non-government. So, okay. so if you have building approvals for say you know, public hospitals, public schools, you know, public infrastructure, okay. um, that's different to private sector. So you might have... Um, yeah, public housing might be social housing or, or that sort of thing. Um, but the, inter the interesting thing here is just the, the, um, yeah, the record numbers. Um, we just keep seeing, as I said, for the fourth consecutive month and the highest record level since February 2000, there is a lot of, um, lot of approvals going on, which, which is good, shows that there's a pipeline of work coming through and the tradies are going to be, be employed for a while, which is the, the whole purpose of home builder and those sorts of things but um yeah i suppose the issue is once they once those um government programs stop what's going to happen then right okay um so for the final time this year the rba which is the reserve bank of australia met um so as far as i know every month they'll meet to decide whether they want to make moderate uh alteration to the cash rate yeah so they um, meet they meet the first tuesday of every month right and so they decided to leave the cash rate at 0.1 percent for december it'll remain like that for the rest of the year um the rba governor philip lowe spoke about uh they do not expect the cash rate to increase for at least three years or until there is a, a lower rate of unemployment and a return to a tight labor market um in the past too the governor of the RBA has spoken about he wants to see more of the banks um, carrying on those savings of the cash rate onto their customers. Can you sort of explain what they mean by that? Yeah, so what they normally do is when the, when the Reserve Bank reduces interest rates, they expect the banks to reduce interest rates to their customers. Um, sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. So that, you know, the Reserve Bank might drop rates 0.25% and the banks might, some banks might drop at 0.25, some might drop at 0.18, um, some might drop at 0.2, whatever. It just depends upon, um, one, how much they can probably get away with, um, but secondly, you know, what their um, profit position is and, you know, how many loans they've got at varying interest rates. Yeah. Um, we've talked about before that when the, Reserve Bank drop rates 0.75, I think it was in March, uh, in that emergency meeting they held, it was towards the end of March, and, or middle of March, and um, that was on top of their March meeting, so they had two, which is um, first time I, I can remember. 
and then again in November when they dropped the rate from 0.25 to 0.1. Nearly every bank dropped fixed rates. So at the moment, fixed interest rates are really, really low, like really low. So a lot of people we're talking to are getting um, either some or all of their loan at a fixed rate because it just saves you a lot of, lot of money at the moment. Okay. So we've also helped quite a few clients get fixed rates with their existing lenders just to lock in a better deal. Okay. So it's something people can be looking at. Okay. One of the other things I wanted to ask you, second last one for today, was there was an article I read up on that had, it was almost like the wording of the article made me believe that maybe they were a bit sceptical about the lending reforms the government wanted to implicate, uh, sorry, introduce. Uh, one of the quotes from it was how the, the government wants to shift the laws from a lender beware to a borrower responsibility model and in turn strip the Australian Securities Investments Commission, which is ASIC, of its enforcement powers. I didn't really understand that, so I wanted to ask if you could explain to me what they mean by the stripping of ASIC's enforcement powers. Yeah, so basically we, we talked about this briefly before, hmm. that at the moment um, a borrower will provide information to a bank and the bank goes through that in quite a lot of detail and... You know, they might ask questions about you know, level of you know, gym memberships and you know, where you, what you're buying on eBay and, and, right. and those sorts of things. So what they're looking to do is put a bit more onus on borrowers um, to sort of trim that stuff and be a bit more responsible with what they're, when, they're, when they're applying for a loan rather than just put all the responsibility on the, on the, on the bank. So what happened was when... We, we talked a bit before about the Wagyu and Shiraz case, and that was where ASIC took Westpac to court. Or ASIC um, questioned the way Westpac were assessing loans and thought that they relied too much on benchmarks rather than what people actually spent their money on. Now, interestingly, Westpac and ASIC came to a... Um, an agreement on the penalty Westpac would pay, I think it was about 45 million bucks, and it had to go to the federal court to be endorsed. And the federal court basically said that if a borrower drinks sh the best Shiraz and eats Wagyu beef prior to getting a loan, once they've got a home, they may not necessarily do that. So basically threw the, threw the case out. Now, ASIC appealed and lost. Now, I think what happened then is that the government um, didn't think too highly of how ASIC had done that case. And when they announced their new responsible lending reforms, um, took some of ASIC's powers away. Okay. So I think um, Philip Lowe, he's... His role, well, the Reserve Bank's role is to you know, keep credit flowing um, without too much sort of regulation. So anything that's going to help that, he, he and the Reserve Bank would be um, big supporters of. Okay. So, yeah, there's, there's quite, a, quite a bit to it. Um, they did, um, the government did put it, um, what they call an explanatory memorandum, or explanatory material and exposure draft. So an exposure draft is like draft legislate, 
draft legislation. Um, I think they only gave they only gave the industry like two weeks to two to three weeks to comment, which is pretty short. Mm. So um, yeah, that that's still to come through. That there was quite a lot of um, commentary from um, social organisations about changing the model because they're just worried that there's too much onus sort of being pushed onto borrowers. So, mm. but you know, our advice, as always, is before you're applying for loan. Um, get the red and green pen out get your last three months worth of statements and go through them and see where you can trim back yeah um because one you're going to save money and secondly it's going to give you better borrowing capacity which you don't necessarily have to use but if you if you're applying for a four hundred thousand dollar loan but the bank would lend you a million dollars there your broker is going to normally be able to get your better interest rate because you're a stronger borrower. Yeah. Not necessarily because you're borrowing more money. Right. Okay. Last one we're going to cover and it's sort of showing a little bit of the rise in home loan commitments for housing. So um, according to the ABS lending indicators for October, the total value of new loan commitments rose 0.7% to $22.7 billion in October. Um, this is a 31% increase from last year's um, last year in October. So over the last year, it's risen 31% on years. So that's pretty. I guess it's a good thing. Yeah, it's good it's for the economy. Third. I guess that it's yeah. up a third over a year. Yeah, I think what's I think that's just sort of a uh, reflection of where we are now. That um, there's a lot of people looking to buy. Um, people have you know put their uh, plans for holidays on hold because of what's happening with COVID overseas. There's lots of expats returned home. There's a real fear of missing out at the moment, or FOMO, as we call it. Um, you know, people are. There's not much supply around. Um, there's also, I think, people thinking that you know, once job keeper and job seeker and those sorts of things um, are wound back or wound down more that there could be some bargains to be had. Um, so, yeah, I just think at the moment, probably, well, we're sort of only a couple of weeks to Christmas now, so you've sort of missed the boat to buy this year. Yeah. Um, but yeah, just be just be careful and make sure you're making your inquiries and um, you're doing your research about whether the place you're buying, especially investment, whether the numbers stack up. There's, you know, we've seen some uh, clients buy some property where the yield is not very great. Okay. Um, if if you're buying for, uh, if you're buying to live in a property, it's a different it's a different purchase decision because it's more emotional. It's about your lifestyle and um, what you like to do and you know whether you want to walk, ride your bike, get to the beach quicker. It's nearer the work. Yeah. Nearer your mates, um, and that sort of thing. You know, nearer to schools if you've got kids. Um, near the hospitals if you're a bit older so yeah it's a, it's a different thing buying an investment as opposed to buying a place to live in okay was there anything you wanted to cover before we got out of here or is that um I'll, i just wanted to give a bit of a plug last week we were on property tv yeah um talking to kate bakos who's the national president of the real estate buyers association of australia i i um and people say who's she i say she's the beyonce of 
real estate in Australia. <laughs> um, just like we call John Linderman the Roger Federer of property research. So that sort of puts it in perspective. We had a good chat about um, uh, seagulls and chips and about how there's more seagulls, which are the buyers, than there are chips, which is the property at the moment, and just some things you can do uh, to prepare yourself for when you're applying for a loan to make sure you get the best deal. So you can find that on our Facebook page, on our website, moneysaverhomeloans.com.au. There's heaps of info, calculators, yeah, lots of stuff you can access, first home buyers, guides, all those sorts of things. So happy to help anyone, even if it's just to confirm that you're on a good deal and um, or if you just need help generally. Okay. Beautiful.